through 36. As you're turning there, let me open us up in a quick word of prayer. Father, we are reminded of Peter's words this morning when he says to Jesus, the Christ, that you have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? For you are the Holy One of God. And so this morning, we believe that in our hearts, that there is nowhere to turn for the words of eternal life, but to you and through your written word. And so as we open up the scriptures this morning, we ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would reveal the truths about the Christ to us, conform our hearts more into the image of him, and may we walk from here as witnesses to that gospel light we do pray. Be with us now. Let those who have ears hear and those who don't. Maybe today would be that day where they would hear the preaching of the word of God. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. John chapter 7, verse 25. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they see to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. This is the reading of the very word of God. May he add his blessing to it. Now, as you know, Jesus has finished his ministry in Galilee at the end of chapter 6. And in chapter 7, he goes to Jerusalem with a laser focus upon the cross. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows that the Jews are full of hostility and they want to kill him. And that what awaits him is the cross in which he has come to bear. And at this point, we still have a lot left in John. We are only in chapter 7, but we have a whole lot left. But what I want you to notice is that we are only six months out from that cross. This is 
the fall time right now and Jesus is going to be crucified in the springtime. So we have a whole chunk of John that is dedicated to only six months of Jesus' ministry. For again, it will be next spring that is not too far away that he will be killed. But we must remember the historical context of chapter 7. Again, chapter 7 is in the fall time and it's during this feast of booze or this feast of tabernacles. This is a seven day feast in which every day there is some major feast, some major celebration going on during this time. And as you know, people are living in booths. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those jam-packed farmer's markets where they got all the tents lined up and people are smashed in there, but that's kind of the scene that you can picture. I don't know that people live in those tents during those farmer's markets, but the case is the people are living here in these tents and these booze, tabernacles, if you will. There's a lot of activity And again, this is one of the most celebratory times for the Jews. And you might ask, what are they celebrating? And why would they live in these tents, these booths, these tabernacles? Well, you might recall the wilderness wanderings of the Jews. That time where they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And eventually the Lord gave them the promised land of Canaan that he promised. And they went into the land. And before they inhabited the land, those first seven days, the Lord called them to live in the tabernacles, in the booths. Why? Because the Lord wanted them to remember what he brought them from. He wanted them to remember the deliverance that he brought them from. And he wanted them to celebrate this new land, celebrate that the Lord had brought them home. Another significant piece of information of this Feast of Tabernacles and that time where they lived for seven days in those tabernacles is that Yahweh also dwelt there with them. He dwelt in a tabernacle himself. He was in their midst in a portable structure and his presence was very near to the people. Now, the irony of John chapter 7 at this current feast of tabernacles is that God is so near and clear before them. God is among them in the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, the word took on flesh and the scripture says tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us. He was among us in human flesh. And now Jesus stands there before these Jews, no longer as Yahweh in a tent, but now as God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, instead of a time of celebration that the Son of God, that God has come near, instead of celebrating that the Messiah is here, Instead, what we see in chapter 7 are very high tensions, very thick hostility. You see emotions wearing thin. Instead of celebration, we hear inquisition, 
questions that are asked with these preconceived answers. What we're going to see in the text this morning is that there are a lot of questions asked of Jesus or about Jesus, but they're not asked necessarily to understand his answer, but they are asked because they already think they have the answer. Rhetorical questions we do see in the text this morning. But the two questions that really emerge in the text that I saw this week are, one, where does this Jesus come from? And two, where is he going? So this morning, let's break up our time and seek to answer those two questions as they are posed in the scriptures this morning. Number one, where does he come from? Verse 25 through 27, again, is a series of rhetorical questions. And the first question is this. They say, is not this man whom they seek to kill? In their minds, it begs the answer of yes. They know that this Jesus is the man that the religious leaders are seeking to kill. They're not confused as to whether or not this is the person that's wanted. The people of Jerusalem are not ignorant as to the hostility of its leaders. Again, they know that they want this Jesus dead. They're not confused by that. But instead, their perplexity is found in the reality that Jesus speaks openly before them. Or in other words, that he speaks boldly. They are stunned at how boldly and unashamedly Jesus speaks in this temple before these people. Because again, what he says is very controversial. What he says brings such hostility to the people that are listening. Jesus is essentially a wanted man and he shows up teaching without any shame, without any fear. And the people are stunned by this. And they are stunned that the leaders are swift to act. No one's laying a hand on them. No one's doing anything. He's just talking. They are stunned that Jesus walks in here and teaches like he owns the place. What confidence and what authority he displays as one who is in charge. Now, you remember, this is not the first time that this has happened. You remember back in chapter 2, Jesus went into the temple before. He flipped over the tables. He drove out the money changers. He takes charge. And yet those in charge... Do not detain him or restrain him. Now again, in the temple, no one is silencing him here in this text, and no one is escorting him away. He continues to teach boldly and with authority. Eventually, they will try to arrest him, but the scripture tells us again, no one lays a hand on him. This point of application has come up numerous times in the text, and I can't just skim over it anymore. Well, I don't think I have skimmed over it, but let me just share with you once again. How does no one lay hands on Jesus? It is the invisible hand of God, the sovereign hand of God that is over Christ. It's not his time to go to the cross. It's not his time to be killed. Jesus is on the divine timetable. And I think that's part of the reason why he doesn't listen to his brothers. When his brothers want him to go to Jerusalem, he says no, but then he waits a couple days and he goes to Jerusalem after that. Why? Because he's on God's time. He's not on man's time. Man wants to arrest him. Man wants to take control of him. Man wants to set his agenda, but Jesus does not have a hand 
laid on him. Brothers and sisters, this is not only true of the Christ, but this is true of his church, and this is true of his believers. We are under the sovereign hand of God. We are on his divine timetable. The scripture tells us it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgments. Our days are even in the hands of God. Maybe we've thought that this church merger was too quick. Maybe some of us thought it was too slow. At the end of the day, we're trusting that we are on God's time as we come together as one body. Maybe you feel you've been in it in a prolonged season of trial. Maybe life has been hard for you recently. Maybe you've endured some loss, some pain. Maybe you've been praying for something for a long period of time, and yet you've seen no fruit of it. Please be reminded, brother and sister, you are under the sovereign hand of God, all in His time. It was not Christ's time. They could not lay a hand on Him. They could not arrest Him. Brothers and sisters, you might be here itching to be married. You might be itching to be retired. You might be itching to see a loved one even saved. Again, let me just say, all in the Lord's time, all under His sovereign hand. He is here for you and He will guide you. Jesus boldly speaks, and this has generated now some suspicions in the minds of the people. And that brings us to that second rhetorical question. They say, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now, I can almost assure you, I know we all have different ideas of, of the pandemic and COVID and everything that's transpired. There's some people on different sides of the fence here, but I can almost assure you that during this time, all of us have had at a point where we scratched our heads and we thought, are they not telling us something? Do they know more than what they're leading us on to know? I can almost guarantee that we have had that experience as we've walked through this. And I feel that that is what's happening with these Jerusalem people They're looking at the authorities and they're not coming in to detain Jesus, to arrest Jesus. They're letting him speak openly and boldly. And this has created some suspicions like, do they think that he's the Christ? Do they know something we don't know? But sadly, their suspicions of the authorities did not override their presuppositions, their preconceived notions of who this Christ is. They might scratch their head for a minute, but they essentially say, no, 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 that can't be the case. This is not the Christ, for we know where this Jesus comes from. And where this Christ comes from, they feel like they know as well. And they have an idea of where Jesus comes from and where the Christ comes from. And in their minds, the two do not line up together. The two are not compatible. For where Jesus comes from is not the place that the Christ, the Messiah, is to come from. Hopefully, if someone was to ask you where Jesus came from, at this point in walking through John's gospel, you can answer that in a gif. I pray that you can, because this has come up numerous times. John's gospel has reiterated this truth time and time again. And if someone asked you, where does Jesus come from? 
You could answer with John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus dwelled in eternity past as a member of the triune Godhead. He came down. He took on flesh. He is the Word, was the Word, was with God. Maybe you might answer that way. Or you could answer with Jesus' words to Nicodemus. When Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Maybe if you're asked that question, you would answer with John the Baptist's words. When he says, he who comes from heaven is above all. Or maybe you prefer Jesus' words once again from the bread of life discourse when he said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is the origin of Christ. This is where he comes from. He is from heaven in eternity past. He's come down. He's took on flesh. And he's been born in the womb of a virgin. And brothers and sisters, this is simple, but this is good theology. This is simple, and yet it is often denied by people. And what we see in the text this morning is that this group of people think they know where Jesus has come from. They don't believe in anything that we just said. They don't know anything that we have just said. But they think that they know where he comes from. They have these false presuppositions as to where he comes from. But the reality is they are dead wrong as to his origin. They are dead wrong. And we see in verse 27 how they formulated this faulty presupposition of Christ. It was formulated because the foundational facts are wrong. How often does this happen? We think we know something. We might have a preconceived thought of something, but we don't have all the facts, or we have the wrong facts. And this is the case with these people. They have the wrong facts. A faulty presupposition, a faulty foundation in which they stand on. And you might ask, what are the false facts? What are the two pieces of faulty information that they have? Well, again, one, where they think Jesus comes from. At best, they think he comes from Galilee. They think he is from there, but as we know, he is not. He ultimately spends most of his life and even his ministry there, but we know that he was born in Bethlehem. In verse 41 As we work down through this chapter, you will see they even pose the question, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They're implying that they think Jesus is from Galilee. And this is a problem because, again, he's from Bethlehem. And it's a problem because they know that the Messiah is to come from the offspring of David. They know the Messiah should come from Bethlehem. So the fact that Jesus doesn't come from Bethlehem, but he comes from Galilee, in their minds, the fact that he is the Messiah is incompatible because he does not fulfill this prophecy. Of course, we know, and I would even say the religious leaders of that time knew that Jesus was from Bethlehem. Interestingly, and I won't get into this very much, but interestingly, Facts are usually left out when it contradicts one's presupposition. And again, I won't get into this much, but I would imagine it seems very likely that the religious leaders knew Jesus was from Bethlehem, and yet they leave those facts out and let the people continue to believe that he was some 
um, that he was born as some Galilean. Also, the familiarity of Jesus and his family is a problem for them. Not only do they think they have this faulty idea that he is from Galilee, but they also have this idea that because they know his family, that he cannot be the Christ. Remember in chapter 6, Jesus had revealed that he comes down from heaven, and you have that group of people who grumble and complain because they say they know his parents. They say, you're from Joseph and Mary. We know, we've seen you, we've seen you grow up as a kid, and now into adulthood. We know you. We know who you come from, and this is incompatible with what we know or what we think we know of the Christ to come. So this becomes a major stumbling block to to them. His earthly line made them conclude his origin was from Mary and Joseph. But again, they do not know the facts. They do not believe the truth of the virgin birth, the self-existence, and the eternal glory that Christ had before he was born with the Godhead before the foundation of the earth. So that's the first bit of faulty information that they have, their idea of where the Christ comes from and how that doesn't line up, or or where Jesus comes from, and how that doesn't line up with where the Christ in their minds comes from. So that's the second bit of false information that they have, where they think the Messiah comes from. Now you're going to be shocked to hear this, but There are some extra biblical traditions and misunderstandings that are in play here for these people in Jerusalem. Again, I know you're shocked, but in the minds of the people at that time, the Messiah was more of a mystery man to them, or the Messiah would be more of a mystery man to them as he appeared on the scene of human history. They thought that he would suddenly and out of nowhere appear on the earth. And you might ask, where did they get this idea from? Well, two places. Number one, they got it from the Apocrypha, those uninspired books, specifically 4th Ezra. And in Ezra, it says this, that the views, and it, sorry, Ezra views the Messiah as arising out of the sea. So in their minds, the Messiah isn't well known. He's not going to come from this this family line, and and he's not going to have this ministry that's ebbed and flowed. It has reached popularity, and then it has waned. To them, the Messiah is coming in this power, and he's coming mysteriously, in a sense, out of nowhere. There's going to be very little that we know about this Messiah. To them, the Messiah would be wholly unknown by the people, and to a certain extent, tradition would even say, that he would be unknown to himself for a while until he appeared to affect Israel's redemption. So there's one place that they get this idea of this mystery man, if you will, this, this, this spontaneous revealing of the Messiah in power. But it also comes, their misinformation comes from a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. Because in Malachi chapter 3 It does say this, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so most of them were also holding on to that and they were interpreting that scripture as this sudden revealing of the Messiah. 
But sadly, they cherry pick this prophecy and they forget or they're ignorant to the fact of the prophecy found in Micah that reveals that the Messiah will come from the little town of Bethlehem. So there's a point of application for us as we read our Bibles, and I think it's clear, but don't cherry pick the scriptures. We read the scriptures as a whole and where the scripture where we might read one scripture and see that it contradicts another, we have to do a little more digging, right? Because we know that there is no error in God's word. It's inerrant. And so if we see perceived contradictions, we need to do the hard work of reconciling them and seeing how they line up with the whole of scripture. But again, it appears that these people, they're not doing that or they're just ignorant to it. And so they have an idea of where the Messiah comes from. He's coming out of this sudden appearing. And yet Jesus does not live up to that. Jesus is incompatible with that. And so again, they conclude that this cannot be the Messiah. You'll notice in verse 28, Jesus says this. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Jesus now arrests their attention, and Jesus now challenges those presuppositions. Jesus challenges that faulty information that they have. When the scripture says that Jesus proclaimed, it means that he's cried out. The decibel level of his voice is now raised. He's wanting to get their attention. He is seeking to gain their focus for what he is about to say. And again, he's about to challenge them and their faulty presuppositions. He's about to tell them that they're dead wrong. You don't know where I come from. Now, when it comes to religion in our world, the one thing you don't do is to tell people of different faiths, that they're wrong. I'm not saying that that is what you should do, but that is the PC way to walk in our current American context. You don't correct people for their faith. You don't correct people on faulty understandings of the Bible and who Jesus is. But brothers and sisters, be very clear here. Jesus is going to correct them. For he says, you know me and where I come from. It seems that Jesus is essentially saying, you think you know me. Yeah, you're partially right. You know my humanity. You've seen me, but you don't really know me. You don't know what's behind me. You don't know the glories of my deity. Now, maybe you work with people and sometimes they start to assume things about you. They maybe make judgments about you. And you might have a tendency to say, you think you know me, but you've never been to my house. You've never seen me with my children. You've never seen me living day-to-day life outside of this workplace. You think you know me, but you don't really know me. Think this is what Jesus is saying here. You think you know me, but you don't really know where I come from. For I come from the Father. And if you knew Him, which you don't, you would know me, which you don't. We once again, re- we once again see this revelation throughout John. 
This revelation of Jesus' dependence upon the Father, His connection with God the Father, His equality with the Father. In John chapter 8, in a few weeks, Jesus is asked by the people, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. John chapter 14 Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. For now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Jesus can say that to his disciples because they have seen Jesus who ultimately reveals the glory of the father. And they know the father because they know the son These people think they know Jesus. They think they have him figured out, but they don't know him. If they did, they would recognize the glory of God in the face of Christ. If they did, they would say that he is the Christ, the Son of God. But in verse 31, do we start to see a spark of faith? Verse 31 says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They are confronted with the words of Christ. And now are they rethinking their presuppositions? Are they starting to see through the deception and the tradition of the religious leaders? Have they been humbled under the bold, open, unashamed proclamation of the Savior? Is this a spark of faith? For again, it says, many of the people believed in him. And brothers and sisters, I want to be optimistic this morning. (laughs) And I want to say that yes, this is a true, genuine belief that Jesus is the Christ. For they say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They can't imagine that someone would come along and do more signs than this Christ, than this Jesus. That's the heart of this question. They can't imagine that they've heard of Jesus' miracles. They've heard of his signs. They've even probably seen a few themselves. And they can't imagine that there's going to come another man, another Messiah, who's going to do more than what he has done. They are concluding because of these signs that he must be the Christ because of the quality of the signs and because of the quantity of the signs and the fact that in their minds, this can't be outdone. Now we do have to filter verse 31 through the first seven chapters of John. And that's why I kind of preface that by saying, I want to be optimistic I want, to, I want to say that they're believing in Christ. They've seen the signs and the signs have pointed to Jesus and the fact that he is the Christ and they're truly believing. But again, we got to filter this through all of John. All of John. Because on the one hand, again, Jesus says his works back in chapter 5, his miracles are used to testify to who he is. But we also see on the other hand, We have been taught that there is a difference between superficial belief and true belief. There is a distinction between saving faith and inadequate faith. And the distinction has really been boiled down to wanting the miracles, seeing the miracles, but not seeing the Christ behind the miracles. 
That's the definition of inadequate faith. You want the physical, you see the physical, but you can't see the spiritual, and you can't see that what he has done is pointed to the fact that he is the Christ. So the question needs to be asked, are they more caught up in the number of the miracles or are they truly believing what those miracles point to? Are they truly believing that those miracles point to the fact that he is the Christ? I want to be optimistic and say this group is believing. They're walking with Christ. They're going to continue to walk with Christ. I don't know. But the, 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 the question that's of greater consequence this morning is not whether or not they believed. The question is whether or not you have believed. Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe that he is the one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus was not merely born as a baby, but born as the vir- from the Virgin Mary? Do you believe that he came down from heaven as the bread of life? If you do not believe... Take the warning from these Jews this morning. It's easy to hold on to faulty information and presuppositions. It's easy to make conclusions when you don't have all the information. But when you, when Jesus has come and given the information, the revelation, now you must change your thinking and you must believe in the truth. You must embrace the Christ. And if you have not, I pray this morning that you would do that. Now, the narrative in verse 32 shifts and it focuses from the question of where he comes from to where Jesus is going. At this point, Jesus is gaining some followership and the crowds are skeptical of the authorities and the authorities themselves finally snap out of it. And they start to snap into action. They realize that they need to squash Jesus at this point. They can't let this man keep talking. The people are starting to to mumble and talk and whisper, and they're starting to believe on him. And as a result, they send some officers to arrest him. As you might know, the Pharisees and the chief priests, who might even be known as the Sadducees, these two groups don't get along. Not at all. But as the wartime philosophy goes, an enemy of my enemy is a friend. The only thing that they have in common is that they hate Christ. They're enemies at the end of the day, but as it pertains to Christ, they are now friends. And so they send together these officers to arrest Christ. Another side note of application for us this morning is, brothers and sisters, Don't be surprised when persecution comes to the church. Don't be surprised when you see this persecution in the forms of groups that come together who would otherwise have nothing else in common, but they're coming together simply out of their hatred for Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised of this. Brother Mike had a a great Sunday school in the book of Revelation, and we were reminded that the persecution... Is, is yet to come. And when it does, sometimes it is going to come from groups that, again, simply have nothing in common except for their hatred for Christ and ultimately now their hatred for you. Stand steadfast, brothers and sisters, even in that time. 
The irony in our verses 32 through 36 is that the people want him gone. They send officers to arrest him. They want him gone. And yet Jesus continues to talk about where he's going. (laughs) It's so interesting. They want him gone. And yet Jesus gives this little speech, this little teaching on where he's going. Jesus once again recognizes he's under the sovereign hand of God and under God's timing. And he says, I'll be going shortly, not in your time, but I will be going. And you should really rethink wanting me gone. You should take advantage of this opportunity to trust in me now, to seek me now. For Jesus tells them, where I am going, you cannot come. The fact that he is going to be leaving does not bring these people relief, which I find interesting. I mean, they want him gone, and he's basically saying, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave under my own two feet shortly here. It doesn't bring them any sort of relief. They actually then are curious, (laughs) and they start speculating as to where he's going. I don't know about you, but if someone's talking, and I don't want to hear anything else they have to say, I'm no longer curious about what they're saying. I just want them gone. Just be quiet and go. And yet, they remain curious. They remain in speculation as to where he is going. And they speculate and think he is going to relocate his ministry to the dispersion, to the Greeks. And as you could see very clearly in the text, he's not talking about the dispersion. He's talking about heaven. He's going back to where he came from. He came from his heavenly abode with the Father and the Spirit, and he will return to glory. And before his ascension and before his resurrection, in six months' time, he will have to endure the crucifixion. You can't go there. He will die as no man has ever died, a sinless Savior to die for sinful men. This is where he would go. He would go to the cross, and then he would go to the right hand of the Father. And he says, if you don't seek me now, seek me now while I may be found You will not find me, and where I go, you cannot come. Regrettably, during their speculation, they are missing Jesus' exhortation. The warning is to seek him while he may be found. Believe on him now, because there will be a time where it's too late. Scripture makes this warning in a few different places, and it's very, very clear. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, when the Lord is speaking to Judah, he says this, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. And then again in Isaiah 55, 6, very clearly, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And then in the New Testament, we see this warning probably most clearly in the parable of the ten virgins. Do you remember that parable? Some of the virgins are away while the bridegroom comes. They lost their oil. Now they're out buying more oil for their lamps. The bridegroom comes. He takes those that are there that are waiting for him. He takes them into the marriage feast, closes the door. The other virgins come back and they ask the Lord to open the door. And what does he say? I do not know you. Watch therefore, 
for you know neither the day nor the hour. This principle that there will be a time when it is too late is very clear in Scripture. And that's what he's telling the people. Seek him now because there will come a time that is too late. Now it's sobering to think about how many people thought that they had more time. They had more time to follow Christ. They thought, let me just have this season of my life and then I'll get back to church. Let me just do this with my life and then, and then I'll dedicate my life to Christ and I'll keep following Him. How many people thought they had more time and yet they died in their sins and there Jesus could not be found. We do know that the time to seek Christ is now. The time is in this life. We know that repentance is never too late. The thief on the cross is a clear reminder to us that even in your last moments, there could be repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, we don't know that last day. And so do not delay if you have not sought the Lord. As some theologians have said, hell is truth discovered too late. There will come a time when the glories of heaven are shut up to the unbeliever. Consequently, there is a time when the agonies of hell will be one's punishment. And at that point, it's too late to seek him. For again, he will not be found. Now, I've been doing some study on the doctrine of hell. I've been reading through this book on the doctrine of hell. And the book is motivated by this observation that the doctrine of hell has vanished from the pulpits across America. And they've said that the two teachings that have replaced the teaching of hell or eternal punishment in hell for not seeking the Lord when he could be found are the teachings of annihilationism and universalism. Annihilationism basically is this teaching that there is no eternal punishment in hell. It is this teaching that if you have not believed on Christ, that you won't be in heavenly glory with Him, but you won't be in hell either. You will just simply cease to exist. God will snuff you out of existence. There is no punishment. There is no hell. You just seek to exist. Now, if that is true, then this exhortation and this warning to seek Him while He should be found and could be found, hold no weight because it holds no consequence for merely you're just going to be in non-existence. So if Jesus is saying that to these Jews, then at the end of the day, they could just say, well, if I don't seek you, I'm just going to merely cease to exist. It's a terrible teaching and it is not found in the scriptures. The second teaching that has replaced this teaching of hell, the teaching that there is eternal punishment for those who have not sought the Lord while He may be found, is the teaching of universalism. And this is probably the more prominent teaching that plagues our churches today. And it is the teaching that there is no hell for sinners. That everyone ultimately, because of God's love, ends up in glory and in heaven with Him. Maybe you've heard many years ago of that evangelical who was a popular Man who was maybe even orthodox at one point had then written a book called Love Wins. His name was Rob Bell. And in that book, it is this universalistic 
principle that ultimately the love of God is going to rule out at the end of the day. That all, whether you've trusted in the Lord or not, you will ultimately somehow be with the Lord in heavenly glory. Again, if this holds true, then Jesus here is a liar when he says that you can't come. For what we see in the text is that there are going to be those who can't come. There is a group that can't come and there are going to be those that will come. And if that's not true, then maybe Rob Bell's conclusions are true, but we know that they're not. Conversely, Jesus is giving this exhortation. And if it is not heeded, it will result in these Jews and for all people who have not trusted in him, it will result in their condemnation. There will be an eternal hell of punishment. You won't be snuffed out of existence and you won't enter his glory just simply because of his love. This exhortation should impact Christ's audience here in the text and it should impact us today. Seek him while he may be found. Brothers and sisters, I do want to end on a more encouraging note than the doctrine of hell, though it is true. And I will end by saying this. What excites me about our two congregations coming together, merging together, is that I truly believe that we together will be able to do more in reaching the lost than we would be able to do alone. I think we both bring much to the table together Most importantly, our common faith in the Lord Jesus. And as a result, my prayer is that we might be able to proclaim the gospel so that while Christ may be found, people will come to repentance and faith in Him. They may seek Him and they may enjoy the heavenly glories with Him. Brothers and sisters, also I'm encouraged and excited of the merging of the two groups together because not only can we do more together in reaching the lost, but I think that we can do more together in encouraging one another to exhort one another, to love each other, to stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's going to take some time for the relationships to develop from both groups But at the end of the day, we're all believers in Christ. And so we should be loving and caring for each other and turning each other to continue to seek the Christ. Brothers and sisters, continue to pray for this merger. Continue to pray for the lost and continue to pray that those who do not know him would seek him while he may be found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the sobering reminder of the eternal punishment in hell. Father, we pray that that might energize us and motivate us and give us a sense of urgency to continue to share the truth with those in our workforces, those in our neighborhoods, those strangers that are around us, to share the truth of the gospel so that others might come to know him. Father, give us a boldness in the face of persecution. Give us a love, even for those who hate us. And give us a strong and bold witness in the community in which we live. Father, continue to grow us in your word. Continue to grow us as your people together, as a church here at Grace Chapel. And may you receive all the honor, the glory, and the praise. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.